Hi, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show focused on policy analysis in international affairs. In this episode, we turn our attention to urban violence in Brazilian cities, and how the issue became a central factor in the rise in popularity of Brazil's president-elect, Jair Bolsonaro. Violence in Brazilian cities has long been an issue, and in 2017, the country had over 63,000 homicides, more than ever before. Organized crime has played a significant role in the increased violence, as rival drug gangs battle for territory in a country that shares borders with the three biggest cocaine-producing countries in the world, Colombia, Peru, and Bolivia. Consequently, public safety was a central theme in the recent general election, where Brazilians elected Jair Bolsonaro, a candidate who campaigned on tougher measures to address urban violence, as their next president. To gain more insight on the issue of urban violence in Brazil and the election of Jair Bolsonaro, I sat down with Jean Dodelin, associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs and an expert on crime and violence in Latin America. Dr. Dodelin, thank you so much for joining us again on Policy Talks. You're very welcome. Uh, you have become something of our Latin American expert. Anytime we have a, a, a podcast episode, particularly on Brazil, you're on our very first episode. Uh, so we always appreciate you coming in and, and sharing your knowledge and your insight. Um, to start, I was hoping you could give us uh, your views on the current state of urban violence in Brazil uh, and if it has changed over time, uh, particularly in the lead up to and, and now after the, the, the recent election. Um, urban violence has long been a major problem in Brazil. Uh, they've had more than 50,000 homicides for, I'd say, at least 10 years. Uh, it's getting slightly worse, but very slowly at the national level. Now, what happens uh, is that Brazil is a very big country, and um, levels of violence vary a lot between regions, and they change over time. So what's been happening, I'd say, over the last 10 years is that um, the former main centers of violence, which were in the southeast, around Sao Paulo and Rio, have become less violent. Uh, in the case of Sao Paulo, um, I mean, uh, really massively less violence. They went from uh, 60 per 100,000 to 8 or 10 or something like that in the last few years. Uh, Canada is at 1, 1. 1.4. Um, but uh, so the, the violence has moved to the northeast of the country, um, where uh, currently I'd say uh, most, uh, most urban centers are are extremely violent. The paradox is the violence moved to the areas where poverty and inequality declined the most under the previous government. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, hypotheses about that. Uh, the one I like best is just that um, I think illegal markets expanded because poor people suddenly had money available. I think that's the reason why we call uh, the drugs uh, that produce the violence recreational drugs. You need a bit of money to engage in those markets. So uh, the region, with the, the emergence of a lower middle class, became uh, became an important drug market in itself. And that's that's my hunch. Now, uh, serious studies have not really been uh, produced to explain that displacement very well. 
now 60,000. The last few years, we're talking about 65,000 homicides for a country of 200 million people. That's a lot. 33 per 100,000 around. So beyond just the, the shifts internally in the country of violence, can you speak more broadly about the underlying causes of, of the violence itself beyond, beyond, I guess, demographic changes? I think I think there are two main two main drivers that are that are linked. One of them is uh, is uh, what I would call poorly managed illegal markets. Uh, well managed drug markets like Canada's, for instance, are not violent. Uh, poorly managed markets are are very violent. And uh, one of the key factors in the the good governance of drug markets is policing and um, policing of uh, illegal markets, policing of crime in Brazil has long been extremely dysfunctional. So I would look for this uh, violent policing on one side, but also, uh, for instance, on drugs, a policing that focuses on retail distribution, that's extremely uh, disturbing to, uh, to small dealers, small users. Uh, and that that creates uh, drug debt, that creates competition among small gangs at the very low level, and that multiplies, if you wish, the points of friction. So, how does the violence that that many Brazilians uh, experience, or at least see on a, on a day to day basis, how does that impact their lives? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a bit difficult to it's a bit difficult to describe from the outside, but but you have to imagine that uh, you think about violence basically all the time. So you have to think about uh, which street you will take. Uh, you'll have to check if you're on a bus. You'll have to check who gets in. Um, if um, if uh, if you go to a restaurant, you have to check what happens around it. You have to constantly be uh, be on the lookout, and uh, and it's not enough. I mean, uh, most people who lead an active life and go out a bit end up uh, being victims of uh, of petty crime. Uh, they, te- they can testify to violence. Now, for uh, middle class and up, uh, it's it's unusual for for these uh, for these events to be to be violent. Uh, for the for the poor, uh, it's much more violent. But so so you have a situation where it's it's a constant presence, and um, as a result of this, uh, people get tired. People get. Uh, people get frustrated. We'll have more with Jean Dodelin after the break. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast in partnership with iAffairs Canada, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. Criminals are more audacious. Public authorities have no credit today among Brazilian society. 
What does it mean to have a president and former president accused of crimes or the former governor in jail? There's a general idea in this country that everything is allowed because there are no ethics. That was Paulo Storani, a security consultant and former elite unit captain in Brazil, discussing the erosion of legitimacy of the country's public authorities and the impact it has had on the proliferation of violence. Dr. Donnelly and I continued our conversation by discussing the role of Brazilian public officials in addressing the country's issues with violence. Beyond just the issues of, of violence and, and crime in, in that respect, of course, another major challenge in Brazil that, that has come up in, in the media narrative about the country several times is on the political level, the, the issue of, of corruption um, and, and some of the past of, of the, the, the last president and the president before her. Uh, can you give us a sense of the scope of the issues with corruption in, in Brazil uh, and, and whether or not that's had an impact on the government's ability to effectively address some of these security issues that Brazilians have? Um, uh, okay, the, uh, there's long been corruption in Brazil. Um, some of it is related to the very structure of the political system. Um, in the last Congress, the one that was elected last month, um, in there were 30 representatives from 30 parties were elected. Uh, and um, so imagine basically uh, the U.S. government having to deal with, uh, let's say, eight Republican parties and uh, 22 uh, Democratic parties to put together a coalition. So one of the ways in which this has been done has been through patronage, pork, but also through um, other means. And uh, on this, I mean, Brazilian politicians have been, have been, uh, have been creative. Um, so for a while there was something that was called uh, the monthly payment, which was organized under the Workers' Party, basically to ensure that uh, they would get a majority of the, the, MP, of the, the members of Congress to support their rules. Now, what happened under the Workers' Party's uh, last two governments, but especially the one by Lula, because uh, the latest one only uh, in the first, the first basically uh, 10 years since the beginning of the century, is that um, the party has not just it, but was at the core of a scheme that was meant to basically um, ensure... Um, that the party would get a substantial amount of, uh, of government money through uh, contracts given to companies. So there was, a, there was basically a kickback scheme where uh, the value of contracts were exaggerated and a certain percentage was coming back into the machine for the parties, uh, the Workers' Party, but also a number of, including very conservative and right-wing parties, uh, who offered support in Congress for its initiatives. Now, through that pipeline, lots of money was captured by a large number of people. And we're talking a lot of money. We're, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. And um, as a result of that, uh, and, and uh, at the same time, that is, the government decided to act on this. And on this, I mean, I think uh, President Dilma Rousseff played an important role 
by uh, by introducing uh, the possibility uh, for uh, prosecutors to use plea bargaining, which is an option that did not exist before. And um, they used it aggressively. Especially um, Judge uh, Sergio Moro, the new Minister of, uh, of Justice in Brazil, they used it very aggressively. And they went after some of the largest uh, companies, put uh, company presidents in prison, a number of high-level politicians. And uh, with this, they were able to piece together um, with quite uh, with with a lot of details the the story of of the of the corruption scandal, which which came to be called the, the car war scandal, because of a small event at the beginning. Um, but the scale of it and the constant uh, production of news, of arrests, of condemnations created uh, the impression, in part grounded, that the, that the whole government was, was corrupt, which was not completely false or that it was completely paralyzed, uh, which, which was to some extent less true. So, so people were living with this, this, this tension because of the constant uh, threat of violence, which was not new. And on top of this, a huge uh, delegitimation, I would say, of the political system when, when, when seeing that all those politicians had a hand in, they appeared to have been elected strictly to, to get rich. So do you think that then opened the door to some form of anarchy in the sense of erosion of confidence in in in, in authorities it, there was no anarchy because i mean uh brazil has a big state uh, has a big bureaucracy uh quite effective in fact um they have a health system that that, that works they have see it's, it's a country that works so it was not an impression of anarchy but but it was certainly uh, a massive challenge to uh, the legitimacy of, uh, of, of politicians and of the political system. So uh, you, you referenced the election. Brazil has a, uh, a new president or, or a president-elect, um, Mr. Bolsonaro. Some of his campaign rhetoric and some of his stances, particularly with regards to criminals uh, and crime, some have called it authoritarian. Um, for some, it brings to mind, at least for me, it brings to mind some similarities to uh, President Duterte in the Philippines. Uh, is that a fair comparison? Well, in the rhetoric, yes. Um, as far as the as far as the the levels of violence and basically what he's likely to do. You have to realize that um, that the state is already astonishingly violent in Brazil. Uh, between January and July, 850 people were killed by the police and the military in the city of Rio. 850. Uh, if you compare that to the numbers from the Philippines, I mean, uh, Duterte looks... Uh, looks a bit like a wimp. Now, the kind of things that Duterte, that happened in the Philippines was that opponents were also targeted and some were killed. Um, there were lots of executions and from that standpoint, Brazil was already there. Now, uh, could it get worse? That it could, that is, could, uh, could Bolsonaro decide really to act on his rhetoric? It could very much. 
and uh, the kind of uh, the kind of declarations that he's made certainly uh, makes those in the police or even civilian militias that are present in Brazil much more secure in their uh, in their um, in their impression that that the state won't go after them if they kill bandits uh, that is presumed bandits and and I think that's that's what's really dangerous with these declarations we'll conclude our conversation with Jean Dodelin after the break You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast in partnership with iAffairs Canada, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. At the beginning of the pacification process, three years ago, there were social projects that no longer exist because of the permanent violence. Now our kids are sick and stressed, schools are invaded by violence, unemployment grows and there are no investments for infrastructure anymore. That was Marco Valerio Alves, a community leader in Rio de Janeiro, discussing the effects of continued violence in his neighborhood. With the election of Jair Bolsonaro, Brazilians have voted for a leader who campaigned on a platform of tough measures to reduce crime and violence. To conclude our conversation, Dr. Dodelay and I discussed President-elect Bolsonaro's plans to crack down on urban violence and the wider consequences of his policies. If we dive a little bit deeper into these, these declarations, what exactly has the president-elect said in terms of his views on how to address crime and criminals in Brazil? He said. He said. Uh, he said that 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 criminals had to be killed. Uh, he said that prisons were not there to rehabilitate uh, people. They were there basically to take them out of circulation. Um, and uh, and he said that uh, during the military regime uh, there was not enough. He said that there had been too much torture and too few killings. Um, he, he made a series of suggestions that that he would be supportive of um, of um, of open and unrestrained use of uh, police force against uh, presumed uh, criminals. Why do you think the the Brazilians r- responded positively to that? Do you think? It was more out of admiration or out of exasperation and fear of continued violence that finally someone is talking tough and I believe him. Well, I think some people admired him. Some people were were very keen on him. Uh, but I think that what what put him in power is uh, is is really a rejection of um, the political class. A re- and especially a rejection of the Workers' Party by a significant proportion of the population. Now, you have to keep in mind that uh, that um, uh, 
the second, uh, the second uh, that that uh, the candidate who finished uh, second, Haddad, got forty-five percent of support, and in the poorest region of the country, vast majorities in the northeast. So, so fifty-five percent uh, of the population vo- of the, the 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 vote of the voters uh, supported him. But of this, I'd say it's very difficult. But I'd say perhaps one fifth really agree with with his program. You have to see that the man was really marginal in Congress. Um, it's it's interesting to see, for instance, he was a member of a party that was heavily involved in the corruption scandal, but he himself was not. And my hunch is that uh, he was just too much of a loner to be invited to partake in the in the in the corruption and um he's he's proven to be extremely bad at coalition building yeah and extremely bad at uh, sustaining uh, relations with with anyone i mean people make a big fuss about the military but uh but he was expelled because of uh, insubordination and challenges to uh, authorities and uh, so um so very not that many people were voting for him people were the people among his supporters i mean a large proportion were were voting against the previous regimes against corruption and in favor of maybe trying something else to reduce violence so when i hear you say that i can't help but draw some some parallels to the american election the last american election at least in terms of rejection of 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 the political class, you have a candidate who who seems to be made out of Teflon. Uh, do you see any parallels between the two? Did did the election of Trump in some ways uh, allow for the election of uh, of Bolsonaro? I don't think that it allowed for it. Um, I think there globally there's a there's a very worrying trend, uh, a kind of. Uh, a kind of sympathy of op- or openness to authoritarian solutions to the challenges that countries are uh, countries are confronting, and uh, but 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 Trump was not really a factor in spite of the fact that Bolsonaro and his sons and many people who supported him um, were open admirers of uh, of Trump himself. So it may have played out with his base, but his base basically the people who are. Bolsonaristas would be that base would be much smaller than uh, than the, the, the Trumpists. Okay, mm-hmm. now now the, the, there are there are parallels. However, I think the most important one uh, and uh, and the most perhaps dangerous one is uh, is that uh, he in a country that's already extremely violent and uh, much more unequal than the United States, that his, uh, his open advocacy of violence against, uh, against um, presumed criminals, uh, his uh, racist comments, uh, his aggressive comments against uh, religious minorities uh, are, appear to be opening the gate to lots of hatred. Uh, which is something that we saw in the United States. Now, where he comes uh, short is uh, he's not a good populist. I mean, um, Trump is a, a, a genius uh, of uh, the use of Twitter, of, uh, 
of the his, his rhetoric is extremely effective and and Bolsonaro is very bad. I engage you to 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 watch and listen to him on YouTube. Um, he's bad. He's bad. It's it's uh, he's, he's not he's not an effective uh, he's not an effective speaker and he's not he won't he, he won't he won't be able to do what what Trump does twice a week in mass uh, in mass rallies. So yes and no. So if Bolsonaro continues with the rhetoric that that I guess in some ways got him elected, uh, and he pushes forth on the policies that he's been advocating for. Do you think that's going to help curb violence, or do you think that's going to incite more violence? Unfortunately, it's unclear. Um, crime is declining, or appears to be declining in the Philippines. Uh, now, uh, I'm not sure that state violence is, uh, is a good replacement for, for criminal violence. And um, and also the profoundly discriminatory nature of violence in countries like the Philippines and the United States, and and the United States too, but in, and especially uh, Brazil, uh, reinforces profound divisions that 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 feed social tensions. Now, in terms of just blunt repression, um, it could lead to some decline, um, temporary, I think, to the extent that much of the violence is driven by dysfunctional drug markets and that the policing that he's, uh, that he's, um, he's defending is unlikely to make them more functional. But, but I cannot exclude the possibility that homicide rates could, could decline. See, um, now I'm not sure that that's how the question should be framed. I think uh, I think uh, uh, see let's say they go from thirty three per one hundred thousand to twenty five per one hundred thousand. Obviously, this is significant because we're talking about uh, about thousands thousands of deaths, mostly of uh, young black men. But uh, but the problems to be addressed. The reason why uh, why even I said that, uh, basically that the source of violence were were dysfunctional illegal markets, but but. But let's say the baseline is extremely high in Brazil, and uh, and the drug markets that happen to be most violent are the, are the drug markets that cater to the poor. So and the policing focuses on the poor and the repression focuses on the poor. And at some point, I mean, you have to address the social problems that underlie it all. And clearly, he's not he's not about to do that. What is most worrying, and I hope I forgot if you if you plan to address it. Is uh, are his plans? I don't know if it's most worrying, but it's also worrying. Is uh, his policy towards uh, environmental issues that that could be that could be truly disastrous? Well, let's let's talk about that. My next my next question. I was going to ask you about Brazil's role internationally. Uh, obviously, climate change is an international issue. Uh, what what is the president elect proposing to address climate change, or is he proposing anything? Oh. He, he is not proposing anything, and in fact, one of his main base of support in Congress is made up of uh, of a sector of uh, agricultural producer who who want to open up um, 
basically the Amazon, but also the Cerrado, which is also a very fragile ecosystem that that's 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 very large and threatened to uh, to agricultural production. And um, he's aggressively in favor of uh, of um, basically um, of challenging. Uh, the efforts that have been made by by previous governments to protect uh, natural, uh, to create natural reserves, or uh, or uh, indigenous reserves too. Basically, uh, he wants if there are resources there, uh, he wants to open them. And there are many ways to do that. Uh, he could decide to directly confront environmentalists and uh, and human rights activists, but he could just cut the budget of the agencies charged with preventing the violations of those rules. And I think that that's that's the easy way, and that's that's the likely way he will adopt. Especially given that the government he's inheriting doesn't have much money to play with. Mm. And uh, but to go beyond that on international affairs. Um, He's extremely incompetent in international affairs. Uh, he's been making declarations uh, that already have marginalized Brazil uh, internationally. His announcement uh, that uh, Brazil would move its embassy from Jerusalem, uh, from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, was made without his uh, basically checking his briefing notes. That would have revealed that that Brazil has important economic interests. Uh, in the Middle East, and that Arab countries have significant investments in Brazil, and he's been doing these mistakes repeatedly, just out of incompetence. Um, now he just announced uh, his new uh, foreign minister, and um, who's a very conservative, religious um, individual, who's unlikely to give much. Uh, I would say, to gain much respect for Brazil internationally. Um, they are really choosing the path of, uh, of um, a, let's say, an isolationist path to a large extent, which is consistent also with their, um, their open uh, alignment with, uh, with Trump, at least symbolically, uh, their denunciation of China, which is their, their first trade partner, <laughs> Um, so on all these counts, I think uh, I think uh, Bolsonaro is likely to lead Brazil down a path of uh, of isolation and marginalization in the region, uh, in the Americas, and and globally. I mean, I can't see uh, many people interested in dealing with him in Europe. Well, I think with that, uh, we'll we'll leave it there. Certainly, certainly an interesting time in Brazil. Um, although I, I suppose you would argue it's always an interesting time in Brazil. My, 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 my thesis supervisor used to say that uh, I was always insisting, oh, Latin America is so interesting. And he, was, he, he lived in Chile, he was arrested, tortured under Pinochet and so on. And he, uh, he said, you know what, uh, I'm sure that Latin Americans would prefer their politics to be less interesting and just as boring as, as, as Canada's politics. So unfor uh, unfortunately, you're right. Very interesting. Dr. Jean Dolan, thank you so much for coming in. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. We'd like to acknowledge the support of our partners at iAffairs Canada, an online media hub based at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. 
iAffairs engages the diverse international affairs community in Canada and around the world to produce policy research and recommendations on foreign policy issues with a specific focus on students, emerging scholars, and young professionals. Visit them at iAffairsCanada.com to learn more. I'd also like to acknowledge the hard work of our production team for this episode. Samran Roy, Emily Warren, and Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Mm-hmm.